Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Women in Entertainment's In Her Words podcast. I'm Renee Rossi. And I'm Gretchen McCourt. And we're the co-founders of Women in Entertainment. Today, we hope you enjoy our upcoming episode with Paul Feig. He is uh, like our new best friend. We love Paul. He's so generous. He gives his time to women in entertainment. He, you guys know him from all of his successful projects, but he is a real champion for women. And he's on top of it, one of the most lovely people I've ever met or we've ever met. Yeah. Funny, generous. We love having Paul as part of anything that we do. So we hope you enjoy today's episode um, and you can follow us at womeninentertainment.com as well as on our social media on Instagram and Twitter. And we hope you follow us and our journey. So this is, in her words, the Women in Entertainment podcast, and I am Gretchen McCourt, and this is my co-founder, Renee Rossi, and we're welcoming Paul Feig as our guest tonight. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we wanted to start off tonight in a little bit of a different direction. You are uh, one of the most famous writers, directors out there working now, and we're, we see a lot of stories and a lot of interviews about your projects. And tonight we want to talk about you and oh. <laughs> your, um, your journey, your career, just how you got started and the people that, uh, that have influenced you over the years. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's very very kind of you, and and it's, and it's great to be on here. I'm such a fan of women and entertainment, so thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, so I guess why don't we start um, and dive in? So, Paul, one of the things when we were doing research for this that I was really surprised is that you started on Facts of Life. Like that was one of your. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of your entry points. Um, so, yeah. you know, when we're talking about mentorship or how you got your big break, um, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about just how you got into the industry and, and what that was like? Yeah, I mean, you know, if I go way back, I'm, I'm from Michigan, you know, and I grew up in Detroit. My my father was a retailer. He owned an army surplus store and my mom basically worked for my dad um, and I was an only child. But always wanted to be in showbiz. Uh, it just was a calling I had since I was five years old into the school play and got a lot of laughs and got addicted to the sound of laughter <laughs> and making people laugh. And um, in Michigan, my dad eventually, when I was like 15 years old, let me start uh, writing and directing and producing uh, commercials for his for his store, which were those ridiculous, you know, UHF, uh, you know, crazy Eddie type. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I had fun and it was very, you know, I, I, I thought it was making a local celebrity. It, it, it didn't whatsoever. Uh, you know, I, once I, I remember thinking, uh, wow, I'm going to be so famous now. And some guy came to the store. He's like, yeah, I saw your, you in those commercials. I said, oh, thank you very much. He said, I didn't say I liked them. He was like, okay, great. <laughs> so, that's the level of respect I got in Michigan entertainment. But, but eventually, you know, became a stand-up comedian, moved out to, to California to be a tour guide at Universal Studios. While I was there, I discovered USC Film School, ended up going to USC Film School, um, got my degree there, but always wanted to go back into stand-up and to acting and into all that. That was always my dream. And um, so did stand-up for, for five years professionally, and that's where some casting directors like Meg Luberman saw me and Allison Jones. And Meg Lieberman was the one who actually brought me in to do Facts of Life um, for, for just one episode, just a, 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 yeah. you know, a small guest star. But for me, <laughs> it was a giant deal because, yeah. yeah, you know, it was a national TV show. And uh, Cloris Leachman was on at the time, and I was a big fan of hers. And uh, yeah, so so and did it. And it was a ridiculous part. I mean, you know, it was basically I was playing a nerd and uh, <laughs> hard to believe. Um, <laughs> in, and then the episode, I think, was called The Ratings Game. And it was all about the good. So rating people, that was back when it was popular to go. It was also 10 or an 8 or whatever. Um, that was new. <laughs> and the whole thing was like, they're going to have a party for hot guys and rate them all. But then, oh, a couple of nerds show up. And they're twos. And uh, it, it was actually a fairly humiliating <laughs> to do. But again, it was it was national TV, so I was thrilled. And, uh, you know, and I'll always credit, credit Meg Lumberman for giving me my break because she brought me in early she knows a stand-up she didn't know if i could act or not so brought me in coached me on how to do it and then i ended up getting the part in front of the producers oh that's fantastic how old were you at that time i was uh, 24 okay, 25 so after after film school and did yeah, you, this and after, did you continue doing stand-up while you were after, or did you want to move away from stand-up and into 
into acting completely? Yeah, I kind of wanted to get out of stand-up. I, I was my whole, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian for, for all my, you know, childhood. And, you know, I was, would watch it. I was addicted to like Steve Martin and George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and all the you know, old comedy records. And I really wanted to do that. But after five years of kind of doing it professionally, I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Um, cause I didn't like going on the road and I didn't like kind of traveling around and being in a different city every, every week. And you didn't know who you were on the bill with and all that. So yeah, I was trying to transition out of acting. And so once I started getting these roles, that was my goal. Like, okay, I'm going to try to stop doing stand up and just do this. But this was in the eighties too. This is like the late eighties when all the, you know, the sitcoms were being based on comedians like Roseanne and, yeah. and you know, and, you know, um, some of the others, but yeah, so it seemed like a stepping stone. Well, and those huge comedy concerts, I can remember, you know, Eddie Murphy. And, I mean, they were yeah. like rock concerts that, you know, the music concerts, they were so huge, those comedy concerts at that time. Yeah, it was, it was gigantic. I mean, that was really before even kind of cable came in and was doing a lot of comedy specials and, you know, and then streaming sort of took that over. And, you know, they're still popular, but that was, a, I mean, that was the comedy club boom back then. It was huge in the 80s. Yeah. Have you like, do you, when did you stop doing stand up? When did you transition completely out of stand up? Because I know that I, we've, we've talked previously and just talked a little bit about um, how stand up has informed your directing as well as you as an actor. So I would love to just talk a little bit about that just because that was super interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really started making the hard transition out in 89. Okay. Uh, and by 90, I, I, um, I was out. Ironically, I kind of got, I did my last performance and then was acting, but then finally got asked to be on a show called Evening of the Improv, which was a big deal back then. <laughs> and so went and did it after I'd stopped doing stand-up for like months. And if you ever see the tape, which I think is out there, it's, it's, you can tell it's somebody who had, had lost YouTube. the muscle. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me at my best. That would be kind of like trying to catch up on it, having not done it for three months like it's a real muscle stand up yeah, like yeah. you know you don't have every night you start to you know you lose it a little bit so in terms of um just what you've learned from improv you know and your start how does that inform how you approach your writing you know your directing because improv it's you know from other from other guests and some you know other folks that have done improv that we've heard Improv is really scary. <laughs> I feel like well, at least for the common person, it's very scary. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Stand-up and improv are, are one of those professions or, or art forms that most people go, oh, my God, I could never do that. How yeah. could you do that? But I always say if you've got the ego to want to do it, yeah. it's it's not. Uh, it, it's almost you're driven to do it. Okay. You have to have that ego to do it. If you don't have that ego, you'll just you'll get shot down the first time you get up and a joke doesn't work. Yeah. So you know, so it instills a weird level of confidence, sometimes overconfidence, but you kind of need that, you know, going into this business. You know, this business is such a mix of artistry, talent, but self-promotion an ego to push yourself through all the terrible times you're going to have because you are going to have terrible times there's going to be tons of rejection yeah. you know and you either handle it by like oh my god i'm terrible or well they didn't get me you know that was a most stand-ups you know will come off like oh the terrible set the audience was terrible you know yeah. because you have to blame it on someone <laughs> <Because laughs> you're the same set and whether you're a little off or not you don't know it just some audiences yeah buy it and other audiences say exact same set will just kind of bomb and so you do get this thick skin which you know you know you take into what i do now into in the storytelling yeah. filmmaking mm -hmm. because you have to you have to get to know an audience you know i mean it's the best training ground doing stand-up and improv but stand-up even more so than improv because you are writing an act you know you're not getting up yeah. and just just you know, making up an act and so you get to learn the ins and outs and the the what audiences need and when they need a break and when you got to bring them up and take them down so you're really structuring your act kind of like a movie at the end of the day interesting yeah that was really interesting yesterday or when we were prepping cut that um <laughs> that that what you took mm -hmm. from your from your highs and lows and learnings and and pivoting in your in your improv um, and stand up work and how it informs your writing and how you seem to let your um, let your projects kind of develop themselves because you're comfortable in that. What does the yeah. what's the audience going to react to? What is the what's the cast reacting to? And how do we pivot as we go in the in the writing and the directing? 
Yeah, well, that's why I'm so addicted to test screenings um, because for me, that's that's where the only place you really tell what's going to work and what's not going to work. You know, through development and everything, obviously you're you're going off your own instinct and off the people that you rely on to kind of give you feedback. But once it's together, that's when you you have to put it in front of an audience because. I can sit around all day and tell you what's funny and not fun, not funny. And my producers can go, that's funny and take that joke out. But until in front of an audience, if they laugh, then I go, okay, case closed. That's funny. And if they don't, then I can't defend it. And they go, all right, let's take it out and put in another joke. So it's really helpful. And I'm really glad I had that experience to, you know, to take into making commercial movies. You know, I, if you're making an independent film, I have personal feelings. That I think every movie should be tested just because, you do want to make sure you're pleasing the audience and there's things you just have blind spots about, you know, that you think is great. And an audience will, will give you feedback. Even if it's, you're not looking for a laugh, they'll go like, oh, that was boring or I didn't like that, or I didn't understand that. And I would say yeah. that's the biggest thing you learn from test screenings is I didn't get this, you know, because there's no defense against that. You can't go, well, you're dumb. It's like, no, they didn't get it. Like yeah. if they didn't get it, they didn't get it. And it's up to you to make sure that they do get it. How early do you test screen in your projects? How much, how, how, how big of changes can you still make when you're, when you're out in front of an audience? Quite a few. I mean, I, I, you know, unless I'm like the last movie I did, The School for Good and Evil, which was so special effects driven, mm -hmm. it took longer to get to a, a test screening because we couldn't show stuff in, you know, embryonic form. But in general, when I'm making a movie that's not VFX heavy, I'll five or six weeks into my director's cut we'll start doing a test just to see what I've got, yeah, you know, because yeah. you know, you do your first couple passes and go like, I think this is good. So once you get there, then you're just kind of shuffling, you know, not on the Titanic, but you're shuffling, you know, deck chairs around until you go, let's just show it to people. But I also have a real thing with, I don't do friends and family screenings. I, I found early in my career, yeah. I found them to be absolutely worthless. They're, right. they're almost, yeah. they're almost destructive because Oh my God, everybody loves that. You know, it's like, but they're your friends, they're your family, they yeah. know you, so they know, oh, that was good because that's not normally how that person thinks. And so, you know, so they have too much insider information. When you yeah. put it up in front of an audience of people who have no idea who you are, yeah. but you need to be, need to be brutal because the audiences are going to be brutal no matter what. Do you do them outside of LA? When I was at ArcLight, I could I would beg to have research screenings at ArcLight. They were like, "No, you yeah. have to." <laughs> yeah, no, you. I mean, anything within the boundaries of LA, you just know you're going to get people who are in the business, who want to be in the business, who want to sound smart about the business. Right, right. You know, so you get it. Almost feels like you got an audience full of film students, and you know, when people start using really technical terms in the focus group, you're like, "Okay, all you're right." Like, we need to go to Omaha. that like um hills is sort of my favorite place to test okay. because it you know it's 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 la but it's it's might as well be a thousand miles away right. from la yeah, but right. you get a really great diverse you know crowd too which is lovely that's fun yeah so in terms of why don't we transition a little bit um in terms of your writing i know um when we were talking you have a really unique perspective of writing and what you expose yourself to um, in terms of other projects that are going on or if people send you scripts that you don't really read them um, while you're in the thick of writing, um, which yeah. I thought was really interesting, especially for our audience. Um, you know, our community are so many up and comers that are trying to figure out how do I get this, you know, script in front of certain people or how do I write this character? And I thought you had such many unique perspectives, um, you know, around character development. So I'd love to just explore that with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's I'm always nervous about recycling something I've seen yeah. and, and not even consciously, like unconsciously, you know, yeah. and so that's why I know so many people, especially directors um, more than writers, but when they're like getting ready to do a project, they'll immerse in movies of the genre and, you know, kind of really yeah. study them. I kind of, the minute I want to do something, whether you either write it or or direct, direct in a genre, I, I go like, I don't want to see anything from that. I've seen them before, so they're in my head. Yeah. I know they're there. But I want to kind of go like, what's my original take on that and not be influenced? And it's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. When you're writing yeah, a character in any genre, they're making decisions, you know, based on the story that you've kind of set up. And it's very easy to go, oh, it, oh and then they would do this. 
And you're like, well, wait, would they do that? Or is that just something I've seen characters do in movies all the time? And so that's why I always think you have to be related, you know, kind of related to your characters and that yeah. they are part of you. Yeah. So that you go like, well, what would I do? And a lot of times you'll, you'll 90% of the time, you'll come up with something that you haven't seen before because it's just authentic to what you, your take on the world is. Interesting. Yeah, and I you touched on something that I think again our audience would you're you don't write uh, from event to event. Yeah. And yeah. and try to fill in in between. Can you talk a little bit about that? That you yeah. letting the the characters go the in a pivot to the direction they would go. Yeah, I'm really afraid of plots that are event driven because I find that and that's I think what most people, including myself. <laughs> Uh, when you're coming up with an idea of like, oh, it's this story, and then these things would happen in the story, and then you're going, okay, now I got to plug and play my characters into these events, and I would much rather kind of come up with the character first. Like, I know the genre I want to work in, or I want the general story, or what I want to say, but if I'm then doing a, I mean, if I'm plotting events without character, then I'm already at, at a loss, you know, because then it's not the emotion is not there. I'm trying to stuff emotion into it and stuff the reality of, of character choices into it versus, okay, here's the thing I want to do. Who are the characters I want in this, you know, and who's my main character, especially, but who are the, the main players I want in this? What are they based on? What in my life do I relate to them? You know, how do I kind of let them let the story represent what they're going through? You know, so it's really about like what is going to be the best story for my character to go through to have the epiphany, to have the change of heart, to have the realization and the betterment that I want them to have. You know, you know, I think if you go from character, and I love doing that, like like okay, what's the character I want to do? And like, oh, this is based on somebody I knew, or this is based on me at a certain age going through this relationship or going through something. And then go, okay, now what story would serve them the best and give them the best obstacles to go through the, to their, sorry, their reaction should create the events that then drive the movie, you know? And so that's why I'll, you know, I'll outline sometimes, sometimes I won't outline a, a story if I have a real strong idea of where it's going to go and how it's going to end, because then I'd rather have the characters in the situation and have them make a decision or something they say that then turns the, the, turns the story sideways, you know, because yeah. it's the next event. So they're not just reacting to an event, they are actually creating the events or their reaction is showing you, oh, this event should happen to them because now this will take them to the next place I need them to go. Okay. Okay. Do you write characters um, with certain people in mind? As you're, you know, obviously you're putting yourself in them and I think you've, wor you've worked with um, some incredible women. Um, do you ever, you know, create those characters for those women? Or do you go into it thinking, wow, this is like, this is a, this is a character I really want this person to play? I find that when I, when I go, oh, I want to write something for so-and-so, even though it's kind of the inspiration, it yeah. starts to left turn from them because I don't want to be pinned down to any set personality. Yeah. Even though I know what they can do, I, I think what it is is I know they're talented. And so I go, okay, I don't need to make this them because they can become this person. Yeah. And it allows me not to get pigeonholed into certain things. And also, I just have no idea if that person's going to end up wanting to do it. I mean, I've had things I've written for people where I said, this is for you. We talked about all this stuff. I finish it. And then they're like, I don't think I want to do that now. I'm going to do something else. And I've always been able to go like, okay, I've been able to like slot somebody else into it and not have to change it as much as I think I would, because it's a little more universal as far as a character and not so specific to a certain person. Okay. What about the size of the, of the cast? I was just thinking about how we mentioned, you know, uh, school for good and evil. I mean, that's just so many characters and so many people. Yeah. But when I think about, I think about bridesmaids, which is a yeah. big, huge comedy, but it's really not a lot of people and not a lot of different characters. Mm. There's those, the five or six core. Do you, do you try to rein it in or do you have things where it's like, I need more than two people in this movie, you know, you have right. to grow or rein it in? Well, ensembles are fun. I really like ensembles okay. because you get so many, you know, extra kind of voices and all that. But you always have to face an ensemble still with a protagonist 
you know, in an antagonist. And then everybody is kind of, I don't want to say window dressing, that sounds too diminutive, but but it, they are in service of your main character. I mean, Bridesmaids was a great example, you know, Kristen and Annie's great script of how those bridesmaids around them represented different aspects of marriage and of love. You know, so that's what you need to go make sure like, okay, what, what do they all stand for? What are, what are they, what's their input to my main characters going to be and how's it going to be conflicting and how's it going to kind of send them on a journey or, or, you know, put them through an ordeal. And, um, you know, but it's really, you know, our focus was on Kristen's character you know, Annie and her journey, you know, and it's funny, like people go always like, you know, everybody wants a sequel to Bridesmaids. But I'm always like, it's, that's not, it's not as easy as it sounds because the reason that movie works, you remember all the window dressing of the dress shop and the airplane and all that, but it's because she's in a real crisis. We meet this really confident woman at a low point in her life when she's lost all her confidence. And this crisis of losing her best friend sends her through the fire and she comes out the other side stronger and sort of back to who we wanted her to be. So to do a sequel is like, well, she can't go through the fire again. So, you know. So it can be, yeah. you know, obviously plots can be done, but that's why I like first, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of sequels because it's yeah. more fun to kind of, here's a person, here's the situation they're in. Let's fix this person. You know, that's, that to me is the fun of storytelling. Yeah. Versus another adventure for, yeah, for that person. And what about yeah. the other side? Do you, have you, have you had projects where you felt like you've needed to add people where it's just like it's through it and it's almost too small um yeah i mean you have it, it depends really uh, you know there, there's definitely projects where i kind of go like oh i wish i had some more side characters just so there's more for my main people to play off of mm -hmm. you know but um but it really the story will tell you what you need and and i i at the end of the day, you'd probably rather have less characters than more, as long as I can service what though my main character needs through the people they're with. I mean, you know, a desert island story could be fantastic if you know the person they're with is interesting, and then the conflict is enough that you can send them on a journey. It's really just how do you send a person on a, a character on a journey, um, and, and hold the audience's attention for an hour and a half, two hours, what you know, however long your movie is. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Do you find that you that projects come at certain points of your life that um, are meant to be? Like when you look at when when Freaks and Geeks came out, and you you know when you look at it's like you've been yeah. part of historic cultural zeitgeist type shows and films. So when you look back right now, do you see certain you know? I know there's a huge cult following for Freaks and Geeks, and people want you to <laughs> reprise that. You know, right. do you look at it and say it was perfect at the time that it was, or do you look at it like I could you know that magic and that lightning in a bottle could happen now? Um, like, I, I, I'm always, I, I always, yeah, I have the imposter syndrome, you know, you're like, yeah. oh, wow, we got away with that one. <laughs> even try to do it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah but I mean, I, honestly, I, I think I spend most of my career waiting for that, like, aha moment, yeah. you know, especially as a writer, mostly as a writer, actually, because that's, you know, Freaks and Geeks was kind of an aha moment for me. Uh, um, you know, Bridesmaids, even though I didn't write it, was just sort of finding it and like relating to it. Spy was definitely an aha moment for me. You know, I mean, that was just kind of like, you know, I was in the post-production of The Heat and, you know, I always wanted to direct a James Bond movie when like, well, they're never gonna let me direct a James Bond movie. It was like, wait, I don't know these funny women. I'm gonna write my own, you know, version and put a very personal story through it, of it, which was the kind of the story of when I did The Heat and how insecure I felt kind of stepping out on my own to make that, you know, with, with you know, with not having Judd that I was working with and stuff. And, and, yeah. and so, so I kind of processed that through the character and, and um, you know, finding, you know, how Susan finds her confidence and all that. So, but that's, you know, that's why I think those ones you really latch into, you're so personally involved with that character and what they're going through. But then if you then find a genre or a bigger story to put them through with tropes that then you can have fun with, and used to affect that character, that's sort of like nirvana, you know, if you can find that. But but it's hard to find it. I always every time I think, you know, you know, in the last number of years, like, oh, it's these two things. And you work on them, you go like, oh, it's not there. Like, and I'm very big on like, I think you catch that wave. And then I've had scripts where if the wave isn't there, yeah. you know, you may eventually figure it out, but sometimes it's just like, you know what? 
if that wave isn't there, look for the look for the next wave. Yeah. <laughs> we switch to a shift to mentoring. Yeah. Mentorship. Mentorship. So you, um, the some of the the breaks that you've mentioned and the and the people um, are still with you, like Allison and and Meg that you mentioned were so important in your career, and you know that you're still working with how. How, with your success, I can't imagine how many people want to be part of your circle and want you to mentor. How do you, how do you balance that? Like making sure you're working with your best people and that you love Mm -hmm. and to work with, but you're allowing these new talents and these new voices um, to come in and to have a chance. How, how do you balance that? Well, I mean, we have our company, Powder Keg, which Mm -hmm. uh, is really set up for that. You know, I wanted you know, realized years ago, you know, I'm, I get tired of my voice. I get tired of the voices that are out there doing a lot of stuff all the time. And I see how the representation, you know, how it was so bad and, you know, and still is struggling to, to you know, it's slowly getting better, but it's still taking a while. And, and just wanted to, have, you know, I had mentored a lot, you know, and have people follow me on the set and stuff. But I always felt sort of like I would just kind of, okay, here's how I do it. And all right, and good luck to you. You know, and so that's why we started Powder Keg to be able to bring people in who we thought were talented, wanted to take a chance on, gave them a chance to see if they could actually do it. We have this, you know, our main thing is this program called Powder Keg Fuse, where each year we fund like five to six short films where we put the word out about what the topic we're looking for is and then a lot of people will submit you know and, and we're, we're we're all about uh you know female filmmakers filmmakers of color lgbtq it's anybody who doesn't have a voice mm-hmm. a, a, a you know a voice in in hollywood and we want to see what they're going to bring to it so we go through all this stuff and have a great team at powder keg who really goes through tons of stuff and we find these things that are compelling people with an interesting voice and then we're able to, you know, each person has a $10,000 budget. They have to shoot it in one day and, you know, and, and they do. And what comes of that is we get to see how they do and they get to prove themselves. And it's not just, you know, we, yeah. by the time it's done, I can safely say this person is good. I saw what they can do. Look at what they did. Here's their calling card. And I will advocate for them because I, I know what they can do. And I saw them do it. So, you know, so anything to do to create new voices, but I think you have to give opportunity. And that's, you know, say in this business, people who have any kind of, any kind of you know, powers, powers are a weak word because nobody yeah. really has any power, <laughs> but whoever it's opportunity, opportunity has to do it. Um, to find those new voices because they're not going to get found any other way and they're not going to have a chance to prove themselves. And is this the, is this the fourth year for powder keg? We just finished our third round. We're just, they're all getting finished up. Actually one was just played in in Sundance to, to a great response. So uh, yeah. So we're very proud. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, for our audience, you know, we do have a lot of students and we do have a lot of people starting out. What is your advice on incubators and on, on projects like this? Are they, are they, do you recommend that they're submitting and they're trying, you know, all the different festivals have it and then individuals that those are great opportunities? Totally. I mean, I mean, definitely, but don't rely on them. You know what I mean? I mean, submit to those. I think you just, you you know, you got to scatter everything everywhere, you know, in order for anything to happen, but also don't fall in the trap of like sitting around waiting for that, for that to validate you or to get that opportunity. Because, you know, when I made my first picture film back in 1997, you know, I I put all my money into it. I wrote this movie. It was a a feature length film about four people moving in a field. It took place in one day. You know, they thought a UFO was going to show up and they didn't know why each other was there. And they kind of worked it out during the day. So, you know, I said, what's the cheapest movie I can make? Okay. Four people in a field one day. That's it. So (laughs) that movie still cost me $35,000 because I had to get, you know, super eight or not super eight, 16 millimeter film yeah. and all the processing and so it was all that today with this your phone <laughs> um you can shoot something that looks a thousand times better than what i shot on 16 millimeter you can edit it in your computer and you can make your own calling cards as you're waiting for other people to let you make a calling card mm-hmm. you know but but the days of just 
saying, I, I can't do it because I need, I don't have the money or I need somebody to help me out. Those are gone. I, I mean, you, you can't fall back on that anymore. When you look back on your career, what was, you know, I, I think one of the things that we constantly talk about are our successes. When you look back on your career, are there moments that, you know, you're like, man, that put me on a completely different path or a failure or a challenge that, you know, a mentor really helped you through? Or was there, you know, how did you approach those types of situations? Because as you said earlier, it's 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 a tough business. <laughs> yeah, no, you get knocked down constantly. Yeah. I mean, I just, I had enough breaks that it kept me going. Um, but again, I was, I was sort of, I was not going to allow myself not to be in the business. I, I didn't know, I didn't know if I was on the right path. I didn't know if I was exactly, you know, my goal originally was I wanted to be right direct star in my own movies. You know, that was my thing. And um, pursued that in the movie I made that I've talked about that cost $35,000. I was the star <laughs> and I was the weakest part of the movie, you know, yeah. like people liked the movie that saw it and, and stuff, but I would had to be wise enough to go like, you know what, that's, I, if I got myself out of that film and just did everything else I did, it would have been a better movie. Yeah. And, you know, but, but it was a big moment for me. And, and I actually had like a real epiphany in the middle of that because I'd always been kind of afraid of being a director before that, just right. because I was afraid of the responsibility and all that. And I was in the middle of my second day shooting and I was way behind, way behind. And my AD was a very nice guy but he was really he was being very hard on me so friend i don't think thought i could do it and he was pretty professional and i had this one moment right in the middle of the day and he goes right behind what are we going to do and i thought i was going to have a panic attack and so i was like all right give me a second i we're walking away i walked away i remember saying if i i could just pull the plug right now and just send everybody home nobody's going to know i'm paying for this you know and i remember thinking like if i don't fix this right now. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this in my life because I will have bailed out on this one. I'm in the hard moment. I remember saying, all right, came back, said like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to catch up. I have this big scene is like five pages of dialogue. I'm going to shut it as a one. <laughs> and, you know, and we just did this big scene. It wasn't, it wasn't great, but I did it. Got us back on schedule. Was able to say to him, see, I'm on schedule. And really got this confidence from that of just like, I didn't back down because I had so many times in my life as, you know, as a kid or as a scared teenager, I would kind of extract myself from a difficult situation. Um, so, so that was a real key moment for me, you know, and then, then there's other moments like, you know, when I wrote Freaks and Geeks and that, you know, that, you know, I was at a real low point when I did that, because that movie, the, again, the $35,000 movie I made, I couldn't get in any film festivals. I kind of bankrupted my wife and I by putting all my money into that and the job that I had on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, they ended up not bringing me back. So I lost that income. And um, it was only out of desperation. I was always writing something, but I wrote yeah. what I, you know, I, my friend uh, uh, Matt Williams had co-created uh, Felicity with J.J. Abrams. And um, I remember watching that going like, oh, like an hour long drama that that seems like a cool way to tell stories. And I always wanted to tell a story about all the kids I knew in high school and who I was and, you know, and that I never saw portrayed and wrote the pilot for Freaks and Geeks. And and that was like a game changer because, you know, I sent it to Judd Apatow, who was, you know, we were stand ups together and he had just signed a deal at DreamWorks because he was coming off of the Larry Sanders show and he loved the pilot and bought it and, you know, bought it and had and then we sold it at NBC. And then that changed everything for me, yeah. honestly. Wow. That's a cool story. Yeah, that's an amazing story. <laughs> one of the things that you had brought up um, in, in the past is just, you know, you don't have a lot of shots, you know, in terms of making your impression, you know, and, and your referrals in the business and so forth. I'd love to just have you talk a little bit about that as to, you know, are you going to pass along this project, you know, or pass along this script? You know, I think our audience, I think everybody wants to help each other out so much that yeah. there is there there needs to also be boundaries and healthy boundaries. Yeah. Well, you know, as I, I always say, like your reputation is all you have in this business. Yeah. It really and I made a few mistakes early on where I wanted to help somebody out. And I just, okay, sure. And I knew they weren't ready or I knew that the thing they gave me wasn't good enough. But I was kind of, well, I'll just pass it to the next person and I'll let them let them down or tell them it's not good. And you know, that's forget it. Cause the minute you do that, people are like, you think this is good? Well, no, but maybe you don't like it. It's like, if you don't like it, I'm not going to like it, yeah. you know? So it's a real slippery slope. So that's, you know, the, the biggest thing. And even when I'm telling, you know, 
people to take your cell phone and make films and just start doing it, you should start doing it because you have to learn, you have to make mistakes. But at the same time, be careful putting stuff out there just because you did it, you know, um, show it to people, you know, and again, it goes against my friends and family thing, but in the beginning just show it to anybody and say, be honest on, you know, be brutal on this or get their friends together you can go put together people I don't know and just show this thing as you don't have to be hard on your work, because if you just kind of say it's great because you did it, or even you're going like, I don't know if there's any good, let's take a look. You know, the internet is a dangerous thing because once it's out there, everybody can see it. And and so, you know, the downside is you put something out and everybody goes like, oh my God, watch this, it's so terrible. <laughs> so you do have to be kind of hard on yourself in that way and allow yourself to learn um, so that you're always putting your best foot forward, even if your you know, best foot's obviously going to get better as you go. And, you know, yeah. we all look at stuff we did in the past and we're like, okay, that could have been better. But, you know, there's also stuff we've done where we go like, if anybody saw that, it's so terrible <laughs> that, yeah. you know, I don't know if they're going to give me a shot. Do you feel that audiences have changed a lot since you started or how have they changed? You know, I know, you know, you're known yeah. for comedy. How have senses of humor changed, you know, of your audience? Yeah, comedy's gotten is in a weird place right now because people are, you know, 10 years ago, people were really into just like comedy, you know, like yeah. this the movie is crazy and it's funny. You know, it always had to have character. You had to be based in, in, in the characters and the, the stakes of those characters and the emotional journey. But still, it was cool to just go like, this is just a, a flat out comedy I'm watching. Um, audiences have gotten really weird about that in the last number of years. And it's really become more about mixed genre and like, sneaking the comedy in i mean that's i think so much horror is doing so well right now because you know people who make horror movies laugh all the time i'm just gonna say that you know <laughs> like it's, it's really fun and funny to yeah. make an audience jump or to have an audience on edge because you're so in control of it you know that that so there is and if you look a lot of you know scary movies are kind of funny even the fact that sometimes they're just so absurd that is a form of comedy in itself and so, you know, that's where I think comedy is right now is this mixed genre. You know, I, I would say that um, uh, Simple Favor is probably one of my favorite comedies I ever made, but it, nobody knew it was a comedy at the time. <laughs> but, but then we do test audiences and like they'd be laughing the whole time, but then also on the edge of their seat and they'd be scared by something. And, you know, that's the nice thing about comedy is comedy is all about getting a very visceral reaction. And so is horror and so is thrill thrillers and that kind of thing. You're going for the same thing, which is like making people jump or be surprised or have an extreme reaction, which then they'll always laugh. I mean, that's the thing. Anytime the audience screams, the next thing they do is they laugh. You know, I'm always amazed. Like if you see two people like run across the street and almost get hit by cars, watch them when they get to the other side. They don't know, don't, like, panicking. They're like looking at each other, like laugh, like, oh, we survived that. <laughs> it, it's just a natural instinct. So I always yeah. find it, it's so much fun to go like, how can that we get like three responses out of an audience at the same time? Do you, do you find when you're on set, um, cause you've worked with some incredible, incredible women, Goldie Hawn, Amy Schumer, uh, Melissa mm. McCarthy, do they come up with their own jokes? Like how do you, how do they incorporate when they're like ad hocly, like running a scene? Well, everybody's different, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, um, you know, you work with Melissa and Melissa's just, you know, uh, like yeah. a, a joke machine, but, but, but all coming out of character too. Yeah. So she loves to surprise me, but then I like to surprise her, you know, and so it's very symbiotic. It's kind of, it, yeah. it's the biggest thing for me is to create a, a, an atmosphere, an environment where they can do that. You know, um, you know, there's so many writer directors especially i know i've talked to actors who would be in their projects and go like that must have been fun it's like no it was terrible because they wouldn't let me deviate from the script because you know the, my, my least favorite words that i hear from like writer directors like i worked three years on that line you're gonna say it like the way i wrote it. it's like yeah well i don't care if you worked a thousand years <laughs> yeah. this you now you're with a talented person who has to interpret it maybe they got a different idea or they got something they want to add to it um, you know, and I, I'm a believer, sure, you got to get the script as scripted, but I'm even less kind of care about that because I just want those lightning in a bottle moments. And so, you know, every performer is different, you know, when I worked with Anna Kendrick and Anna is brilliant at like giving you different performances of the same line. Like she, she doesn't, didn't love like, you know, like don't throw a million jokes at me, you know, let's, let's concentrate on this. And I get just as much 
variety out of her by her doing that because you know this take is really a goofy take this take is a really serious this one's really manic you know and it's fantastic so all i ever ask out of any any actors i work with is just give me let me create variety either through you know through what you're doing or let me get it from you but (laughs) one thing i don't do is i don't rehearse um yeah. Because I find if I just go like, let's just set up the camera, let's get, you know, we know where we want to be. We kind of got our blocking. Even when we do the blocking, it's like, don't just, just show me where you're going to go. You know, I don't do it because I've had so many times where you do a rehearsal, like it's brilliant. And you're like, oh, well, we didn't shoot that. It's never as good. So what I find is like, we get the actors in there, they do their first take. A lot of times, like, I'm like, that's completely not what I thought it should be and what I wanted at all. But I don't tell them that. And I just sort of go like, okay, we'll try this, try this. And I slowly adjust them each take to what I think I want. And by the time, you know, then it'll take like eight, nine, 10 takes to incrementally get to this different place. And I find almost every time I get to the one that I thought I wanted, it's not what I wanted anymore. I go like, you know, the idea I had wasn't as good as what was coming out of this kind of creative moment in this talented person interpreting my words or the words of the writer and that's exciting because then i get to the editing room and i've got this whole array of of levels that i could pop in and out and then you know then on top of that add in try different jokes you know and they're surprised me with a joke and i you know then i have sometimes have writers on the set and they're handing me jokes on post-it notes so you know it's a long way to say like we kind of all we do is kind of feed the editing room at the end of the day by getting a whole range of everything out of out of the actor so that then we can you know the thing i would say on the set is you know generally shoots go really well you know and every take and people love it and the, the studio loves the dailies and they're excited and it's going really well and I'm always going like, I just hope it adds up. And, and it's and it's kind of the truest thing about filmmaking is the moments can all be great and they can add up to be terrible, oh, <laughs> like right. a terrible yeah. hole. And so that's why you have to go like, I have to have all these different levels because what I think is going to work, I don't know if it's going to work or not. Okay. Um, one of the things, now you've worked with a lot of incredible women. You've been known to work with incredible women and write these incredible stories for women. Um, and you once said that you feel that there were so many poor roles for women and they that women were relegated to a 15-year-old boy's image of what women can be. Yeah. Was there a pivotal point that, or a role or something that you saw that you were like, wow, this is just terrible. Like, I have to fix this. <laughs> um, it, it was cumulative. You know, I, it came from, as a kid, I would watch movies from the 30s and the 40s with my mom, you know, and these yeah. screwball comedies and stuff. And, and the men and the women were really evenly matched and they were, you know, snapping things off at each other and, you know, taking each other down in different ways, verbal volleys and all that stuff. And that was so exciting to me. And so then I would, you know, growing up in the 70s and then, you know, coming of age in the 80s and all that, watch these movies and go, oh God, like the women's parts are terrible. Like, you know, all the guys are having the great time and they're being cool and all this stuff. And then, you know, here are the the, the women kind of either, what, what always made me the maddest was, was the the wife who doesn't understand. You know, yeah. it's always like some crow. You know, and there was always those obligatory scenes. You're from the family and you're out, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, well, what a terrible character for this woman, you know, because yeah. either either she doesn't realize her husband's saving the world, you know, and, and so she's just a drag and we're all going like, oh, boo, her. You know, it's just like, what, what, why is this happening? Why am I watching women being regulate, relegated to these sort of, you know, terrible roles? And then, then comedy put it on top of it. You know, here's the the, the the beautiful, unattainable, you know, or perfect girl who loves sports or loves whatever you, you know, other, you know, I, they're trying to create these perfect women, you know, for nerdy dudes. And so that was boring. Or you'd see them be the, the, the mean wife, you know, or the mean girlfriend. You know, honestly, you know, Rachel Harris, I love and I think she's so funny. And I remember, you know, I love the movie The Hangover. I think it's one of the most brilliant comedies of all time. But her character is so terrible in that movie because she just <laughs> mean. And I go like, it's just hilarious, like in real life. Like, yeah. why'd she got to be this screw? You know, and that really kind of bugged me. And then when I saw um, uh, School of Rock, another brilliant movie, 
But I love Sarah Silverman. She's so funny. And she's like a mean girlfriend in that. And I'm just like, well, why didn't she get to be funny like Jack Black and everybody else? And that stuff just started to drive me crazy. And it was just like, I, I, you know, know, especially knowing those, those people personally, you know, you're like, I want you to be funny. And so they just was like, you know, it, it'd been something I want to do anyway, because I was close with my mom and all my friends were girls when I was growing up. So I always related more to those stories anyway. And then he had to go through this period of, you know, trying to sell stuff and trying to develop male oriented kind of stories. And I always felt like an imposter because, you know, I mean, I did freaks and geeks. I only relate to the geeks really. And, you know, I don't relate to the freaks just because they were outsiders too, but they were cooler than us. But, um, you know, so it all kind of added up to just wanting to do this and, and yeah. create really three-dimensional roles for, for all the talented women out there. We all thank you. Everybody. No, it's fun. So as we we've talked about, you know, the how comedy is, how audiences have changed, and and how you know these roles for women have changed in in the especially these last couple of years on the business side of things with all of the different outlets and the the streaming services and the theaters changing. And do you? Do you see that as a, is that changing for, for the creative community? It feels like, are things getting, you know, are they moving faster? Are there more outlets? How, how have all of those other pieces add up and help the business to change? Well, I think it's been great because it creates so much more opportunity. There's so many more outlets. You know, we always used to be fighting over a few movie studios and a few TV, you know, and networks and all that. And now it, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's almost going too far. I'm glad because I want everybody to be working, but I can now, you know, we're feeling now people are starting to rein it back in because it was getting, doing so much stuff. But thank goodness, I mean, that it got to go so far. And I think it'll keep going far because people just need good stuff. And and what we're seeing is so much good stuff. I mean, I don't know about you, but like there's so many things still on my watch list that I can't get to that I know are great. But how great, you know, having grown up in the 70s when TV was, pretty universally terrible right. you know to go wow it's so nice yeah. that there's this meritocracy of great stuff out there so i think it's great and it's created a lot more opportunity for for you know voices that don't don't normally get to get out there i mean it still needs we've got a long way to go but it should be celebrating but the fact that at least it's it's kind of happening now and i just hope it doesn't backslide you know, because we've seen these things backslide before, right? When you think, you know, you think about the 70s and the women's movement, it's like, okay, we're, we're moving forward. And then suddenly, you know, backslid. So but this, this feels different to me now, I have to say, it just because there are more real opportunities that are happening. But again, not not enough. It's, you know, I mean, we just saw from the, the directing nominations today that, uh, you know, we're still not yeah. not going in, in fully in the right direction. So do we want to finish up our, uh, we're, yeah. I can't believe we're at like the we're end of our time time. already. It goes so oh, no. fast. I know. Because <laughs> um, I, talk, our... I talk too much. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, never, never. We can talk for hours. We can talk for hours. We have thousands of questions for you. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So our, do we want to finish up with our, we're, 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 we're trying to establish our, our women, our, in her words, final question or final yeah. story. Ah. So do oh, you have a question? Do we want yeah. to, yeah. Um, <laughs> Our question is, what was your life blooper? Like, what was like a funny time for you or a blooper in your life that just changed who you were? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a that's a good one and a tough one. Uh, there's been so many bloopers. <laughs> Sadly, that that's the oh gosh. Um, trying to think. Uh, there's been so many terrible, terrible times. Um, I hope wow, not. You feel, you, my biggest blooper is really it, it's more it's just an overarching thing which is I'm, I'm such an optimist i've always been my whole life and because when you're an optimist all you do is get knocked down um you know because you wake up more like today's the day it's going to be great you know and it very rarely happens. And so you just get pilloried and knocked down and there's bullies. You know, when I was a kid, the bullying and bullied there. And now people just want to beat you up and, you know, and you embarrass yourself in front of, you know, whoever you like at the time and all that. And you screw up your homework or you mess up the test, you know, and, and you just get knocked down. And by the end of the day, I was just kind of crawl in the bed like, oh, my gosh, you know, <laughs> that didn't work. But then the next day you wake up and you're like, Today's the day. Today's going to be great. So, you know, 
it's almost it's in a bad way to be an optimist because all you can do is get knocked down. But I would not want to be anything other than an optimist because I never want to get up and go like, forget it. It's all, <laughs> you know, you need to have that, whether you're driven by ego, optimism, just pure will to make something good happen and not want to believe that the world is unfair and terrible then I think that's a great thing. So it, it creates many, many bloopers in your life. But at the same time, there, there's no kind of better way to be because then you're just a more, I don't know, you're a happier person, even though you, because you learn how to absorb the blows, you know, and you kind of are able to bounce back and, and, and you have to find a way to bounce back. You know, like giving up is just, it, it, then there's nothing, you know, the minute you give up, it's all over. So and it shouldn't be over because there's just too much. There's, I don't want to say opportunity out there. There's too much opportunity to create for yourself, you know. Uh, and, and that's why so many people kind of rely on the business, and you can't do that. Like it's almost like it's like dating. It's like you know, I went through when I was trying to find a you know a girlfriend at the time. And every time I'd like, she's the one and you'd just be so desperate and falling apart and make an idiot of yourself and like go too far and give gifts or, you know, try to whatever, you know, like try to impress the person and you just, you're so desperate, like they just smell it on you and it just, it doesn't work. And it, you know, the minute I would like, you know what, forget it. I'm going to be a bachelor. I just, I'll, I'm better off on my own. I was an only child to do it. And like a week later, I met my wife, you know, and now we've been married for almost, almost 30 years. So. You know, because like I just kind of dropped the facade and the desperation. And I think that's what you have to do in this business. You just have to like be so driven to do what you want to do, be able to pivot. You know, if you can't make this, then maybe do this. And maybe it's something that's completely different. You're making stuff on Etsy that's super cool. But like if you make it as pure, people will find it. And then that will open up the opportunity for you to then go. And I also do this or to be kind of what you do into something else and just keep inventing and reinventing and being excited about that thing inside you that is your voice that you want to tell your stories or your take on the world or just put your attitude out into the world you know and, and so never lose that if you enjoyed this episode subscribe and leave a review on spotify and apple podcasts to stay up to date with in her words Join the conversation by following Women in Entertainment on our social channels and subscribe to our weekly newsletter at womeninentertainment.com.